Chapter Twenty Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova. Episode Five Milan and Mantua. Chapter Twenty Two. My great operation had to be performed on the following day. Otherwise, according to all established rules, I would have had to wait until the next full moon. I had to make the gnomes raise the treasure to the surface of the earth at the very spot on which my incantations would be performed. Of course, I knew well enough that I should not succeed, but I knew likewise that I could easily reconcile Francia and Capitani to a failure by inventing some excellent reasons for our want of success. In the meantime, I had to play my part of a magician, in which I took a real delight. I kept Javotte at work all day, sewing together, in the shape of a ring, some thirty sheets of paper on which I painted the most wonderful designs. That ring, which I called Maximus, had a diameter of three geometric paces. I had manufactured a sort of sceptre or magic wand with a branch of olive brought by Francia from Cesena. Thus prepared, I told Javotte that, at twelve o'clock at night, when I came out of the magic ring, she was to be ready for everything. The order did not seem repugnant to her. She longed to give me that proof of her obedience, and, on my side, considering myself as her debtor, I was in a hurry to pay my debt and to give her every satisfaction. The hour having struck, I ordered Francia and Capitani to stand on the balcony, so as to be ready to come to me if I called for them, and also to prevent anyone in the house seeing my proceedings. I then threw off all profane garments. I clothed myself in a long white robe, the work of a virgin's innocent hands. I allow my long hair to fall loosely. I place the extraordinary crown on my head, the circle maximus on my shoulders, and, seizing the sceptre with one hand, the wonderful knife with the other, I go down into the yard. There I spread my circle on the ground, uttering the most barbarous words, and after going round it three times, I jump into the middle. Squatting down there, I remain a few minutes motionless. Then I rise, and I fix my eyes upon a heavy, dark cloud coming from the west, whilst from the same quarter the thunder is rumbling loudly. What a sublime genius I should have appeared in the eyes of my two fools, if, having a short time before taken notice of the sky in that part of the horizon, I had announced to them that my operation would be attended by that phenomenon. The cloud spreads with fearful rapidity, and soon the sky seems covered with a funeral pall, on which the most vivid flashes of lightning keep blazing every moment. Such a storm was a very natural occurrence, and I had no reason to be astonished at it, but somehow fear was beginning to creep into me, and I wished myself in my room. My fright soon increased at the sight of the lightning, and on hearing the claps of thunder which succeeded each other with fearful rapidity, and seemed to roar over my very head. I then realized what extraordinary effect fear can have on the mind, for I fancied that, if I was not annihilated by the fires of heaven which were flashing all around me, it was only because they could not enter my magic ring. Thus was I admiring my own deceitful work. That foolish reason prevented me from leaving the circle in spite of the fear which caused me to shudder. If it had not been for that belief, the result of a cowardly fright, I would not have remained one minute where I was, and my hurried flight would no doubt have opened the eyes of my two dupes, who could not have failed to see that, far from being a magician, I was only a poltroon. 
the violence of the wind, the claps of thunder, the piercing cold, and above all, fear, made me tremble all over like an aspen leaf. My system, which I thought proof against every accident, had vanished. I acknowledged an avenging God, who had waited for this opportunity of punishing me at one blow for all my sins, and of annihilating me, in order to put an end to my want of faith. The complete immobility which paralyzed all my limbs seemed to me a proof of the uselessness of my repentance, and that conviction only increased my consternation. But the roaring of the thunder dies away, the rain begins to fall heavily, danger vanishes, and I feel my courage reviving. Such is man, or at all events, such was I at that moment. It was raining so fast that, if it had continued pouring with the same violence for a quarter of an hour, the country would have been inundated. As soon as the rain had ceased, the wind abated, the clouds were dispersed, and the moon shone in all its splendour, like silver in the pure blue sky. I take up my magic ring, and telling the two friends to retire to their beds without speaking to me, I hurry to my room. I still felt rather shaken, and, casting my eyes on Javotte, I thought her so pretty that I felt positively frightened. I allowed her to dry me, and after that necessary operation I told her piteously to go to bed. The next morning she told me that, when she saw me come in, shaking all over in spite of the heat, she had herself shuddered with fear. After eight hours of sound sleep, I felt all right, but I had had enough of the comedy, and to my great surprise the sight of Genevieve did not move me in any way. The obedient Javotte had certainly not changed, but I was not the same. I was for the first time in my life reduced to a state of apathy, and in consequence of the superstitious ideas which had crowded in my mind the previous night, I imagined that the innocence of that young girl was under the special protection of heaven and that if I had dared to rob her of her virginity, the most rapid and terrible death would have been my punishment. At all events, thanks to my youth and my exalted ideas, I fancied that, through my self-denying resolutions, the father would not be so great a dupe, and a daughter not so unhappy, unless the result should prove as unfortunate for her as it had been for poor Lucy of Pazian. The moment that Javotte became in my eyes an object of holy horror, my departure was decided. The resolution was all the more irrevocable, because I fancied some old peasant might have witnessed all my tricks in the middle of the magic ring, in which case the most holy, or if you like, the most infernal inquisition, receiving information from him, might very well have caught me, and enhanced my fame by some splendid auto-da-fe, in which I had not the slightest wish to be the principal actor. It struck me, as so entirely within the limits of probability, that I sent at once for Francia and Capitani, and in the presence of the unpolluted virgin I told them that I had obtained from the seven spirits watching over the treasure all the necessary particulars, but that I had been compelled to enter into an agreement with them to delay the extraction of the treasure placed under their guardianship. I told Francia that I would hand to him in writing all the information which I had compelled the spirits to give me. I produced, in reality, a few minutes afterwards, a document similar to the one I had concocted at the public library in Mantua, adding that the treasure consisted of diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and one hundred thousand pounds of gold dust. I made him take an oath on my pocket-book to wait for me, and not to have faith in any magician unless he gave him an account of the treasure in every way similar to the one which, as a great favour, I was leaving in his hands. I ordered him to burn the crown and the ring, but to keep the other things carefully until my return. "'As for you, Capitani,' I said to my companion, "'proceed at once to Cesena, and remain at the inn 
until our luggage has been brought by the man whom Franzia is going to send with it. Seeing that poor Javotte looked miserable, I went up to her, and, speaking to her very tenderly, I promised to see her again before long. I told her at the same time that, the great operation having been performed successfully, her virginity was no longer necessary, and that she was at liberty to marry as soon as she pleased, or whenever a good opportunity offered itself. I at once returned to the city, where I found Capitani making his preparations to go to the fair of Lugo, and then to Mantua. He told me, crying like a child, that his father would be in despair when he saw him come back without the knife of St. Peter. "'You may have it,' I said, "'with the sheath, if you will let me have the one thousand Roman crowns, the amount of the letter of exchange.' He thought it an excellent bargain, and accepted it joyfully. I gave him back the letter of exchange, and made him sign a paper by which he undertook to return the sheath whenever I brought the same amount. But he is still waiting for it. I did not know what to do with the wonderful sheath, and I was not in want of money, but I should have considered myself dishonoured if I had given it to him for nothing. Besides, I thought it a good joke to levy a contribution upon the ignorant credulity of a Count Palatine created by the grace of the Pope. In after days, however, I would willingly have refunded his money, but, as fate would have it, we did not see each other for a long time, and, when I met him again, I was not in a position to return the amount. It is therefore only to chance that I was indebted for the sum, and certainly Capitani never dreamt of complaining, for, being the possessor of Gladium cum Fagina, he truly believed himself the master of every treasure concealed in the papal states. Capitani took leave of me on the following day, and I intended to proceed at once to Naples, but I was again prevented. This is how it happened. As I returned to the inn after a short walk, mine host handed me the bill of the play announcing four performances of the Didone of Metastasio at the Spada. Seeing no acquaintance of mine among the actors or actresses, I made up my mind to go to the play in the evening, and to start early the next day with post-horses. A remnant of my fear of the Inquisition urged me on, and I could not help fancying that spies were at my heels. Before entering the house I went into the actress's dressing-room, and the leading lady struck me as rather good-looking. Her name was Narizzi, and she was from Bologna. I bowed to her, and after the commonplace conversation usual in such cases, I asked her whether she was free. "'I am only engaged with a manager,' she answered. "'Have you any lover?' "'No.' "'I offer myself for the post, if you have no objection.' She smiled jeeringly, and said, "'Will you take four tickets for the four performances?' I took two sequins out of my purse, taking care to let her see that it was well filled, and when she gave me the four tickets, presented them to the maid who was dressing her, and was prettier than the mistress, and so left the room without uttering a single word. She called me back. I pretended not to hear her, and took a ticket for the pit. After the first ballet, finding the whole performance very poor, I was thinking of going away, when, happening to look towards the chief box, I saw to my astonishment that it was tenanted by the Venetian Manzoni and the celebrated Juliette. The reader will doubtless remember the ball she gave at my house in Venice, and the smack with which she saluted my cheek on that occasion. They had not yet noticed me, and I inquired from the person seated next to me who was that beautiful lady wearing so many diamonds. He told me that she was Madame Quirini, from Venice whom Count Spada, the owner of the theatre, who was sitting near her, had brought with him from Faenza. I was glad to hear that Monsieur Querini had married her at last, 
but I did not think of renewing the acquaintance, for reasons which my reader cannot have forgotten, if he recollects our quarrel when I had to dress her as an abbey. I was on the point of going away when she happened to see me and called me. I went up to her, and, not wishing to be known by any one, I whispered to her that my name was Ferruzzi. Manzoni informed me that I was speaking to Her Excellency, Madame Querini. "'I know it,' I said, through a letter which I have received from Venice, and I beg to offer my most sincere congratulations to Madame. She heard me, and introduced me to Count Spada, creating me a baron on the spot. He invited me most kindly to come to his box, asked me where I came from, where I was going to, etc., and begged the pleasure of my company at supper for the same evening.' Ten years before, he had been Juliette's friend in Vienna, when Maria Theresa, having been informed of the pernicious influence of her beauty, gave her notice to quit the city. She had renewed her acquaintance with him in Venice, and had contrived to make him take her to Bologna on a pleasure trip. Monsieur Manzoni, her old follower, who gave me all this information, accompanied her in order to bear witness of her good conduct before Monsieur Querini. I must say that Manzoni was not a well-chosen chaperon. In Venice she wanted everybody to believe that Carini had married her secretly, but at a distance of fifty leagues she did not think such a formality necessary, and she had already been presented by the general to all the nobility of Susena as Madame Carini Papazis. Monsieur Carini would have been wrong in being jealous of the Count, for he was an old acquaintance who would do no harm. Besides, it is admitted amongst certain women that the reigning lover who is jealous of an old acquaintance is nothing but a fool, and ought to be treated as such. Juliette, most likely afraid of my being indiscreet, had lost no time in making the first advances, but, seeing that I had likewise some reason to fear her want of discretion, she felt reassured. From the first moment I treated her politely, and with every consideration due to her position. I found numerous company at the General's, and some pretty women. Not seeing Juliette, I inquired for her from Monsieur Manzoni, who told me that she was at the faro-table, losing her money. I saw her seated next to the banker, who turned pale at the sight of my face. He was no other than the so-called Count Chely. He offered me a card, which I refused politely, but I accepted Juliette's offer to be her partner. She had about fifty sequins. I handed her the same sum, and took a seat near her. After the first round, she asked me if I knew the banker. Chely had heard the question. I answered negatively. A lady on my left told me that the banker was Count Alfani. Half an hour later, Madame Querini went seven and lost. She increased her stake of ten sequins. It was the last deal of the game, and therefore the decisive one. I rose from my chair, and fixed my eyes on the banker's hands. But in spite of that, he cheated before me, and Madame lost. Just at that moment, the general offered her his arm to go to supper. She left the remainder of her gold on the table, and after supper, having played again, she lost every sequin. I enlivened the supper by my stories and witty jests. I captivated everybody's friendship, and particularly the generals, who, having heard me say that I was going to Naples only to gratify an amorous fancy, entreated me to spend a month with him and to sacrifice my whim. But it was all in vain. My heart was unoccupied. I longed to see Lucrezia and Therese, whose charms after five years I could scarcely recollect. I only consented to remain in Cesena the four days during which the general intended to stay. The next morning, as I was dressing, I had a call from the cowardly Alfani Celli. I received him with a jeering smile, saying that I had expected him. The hairdresser being in the room, Celli did not answer, but as soon as we were alone, he said, "'How could you possibly expect my visit?' 
I will tell you my reason as soon as you have handed me one hundred sequins, and you are going to do so at once. Here are fifty which I brought for you. You cannot demand more from me. Thank you. I take them on account, but, as I am good-natured, I advise you not to show yourself this evening in Count Spada's drawing-rooms, for you would not be admitted, and it would be owing to me. I hope that you will think twice before you are guilty of such an ungenerous act. I have made up my mind, but now leave me. There was a knock at my door, and the self-styled Count Alfani went away without giving me the trouble of repeating my order. My new visitor proved to be the first castrato of the theatre, who brought an invitation to dinner from Narizzi. The invitation was curious, and I accepted it with a smile. The castrato was named Nicolas Peretti. He pretended to be the grandson of a natural child of Sixtus V. It might have been, so I shall have to mention him again in fifteen years. When I made my appearance at Narizzi's house, I saw Count Alfani, who certainly did not expect me, and must have taken me for his evil genius. He bowed to me with great politeness, and begged that I would listen to a few words in private. "'Here are fifty sequins more,' he said. "'But as an honest man, you can take them only to give them to Madame Querini. But how can you hand the amount to her, without letting her know that you have forced me to refund it? You understand what consequences such a confession might have for me. I shall give her the money only when you have left this place. In the meantime, I promise to be discreet. But be careful not to assist fortune in my presence, or I must act in a manner that will not be agreeable to you. Double the capital of my bank, and we can be partners. Your proposal is an insult. He gave me fifty sequins, and I promised to keep his secret. There was a numerous attendance in Narizzi's rooms, especially of young men, who after dinner lost all their money. I did not play, and it was a disappointment for my pretty hostess, who had invited me only because she had judged me as simple as the others. I remained an indifferent witness of the play, and it gave me an opportunity of realizing how wise Mohammed had been in forbidding all games of chance. In the evening after the opera, Count Celli had the faro-bank, and I lost two hundred sequins, but I could only accuse ill luck. Madame Carini won. The next day, before supper, I broke the bank, and after supper, feeling tired and well pleased with what I had won, I returned to the inn. The following morning, which was the third day, and therefore the last but one of my stay in Cesena, I called at the general's. I heard that his adjutant had thrown the cards in Alfani's face and that a meeting had been arranged between them for twelve o'clock. I went to the adjutant's room, and offered to be his second, assuring him that there would be no blood spilled. He declined my offer with many thanks, and at dinner-time he told me that I had guessed rightly, for Count Alfani had left for Rome. "'In that case,' I said to the guests, "'I will take the bank to-night.' After dinner, being alone with Madame Querini, I told her all about Alfani, alias Celli, and handed her the fifty sequins of which I was a depository. "'I suppose,' she said, "'that by means of this fable you hope to make me accept fifty sequins. But I thank you. I am not in want of money.' "'I will give you my word that I have compelled the thief to refund this money, together with the fifty sequins of which he had likewise cheated me.' "'That may be, but I do not wish to believe you. I beg to inform you that I am not simple enough to allow myself to be duped, and, what is worse, cheated in such a manner. Philosophy forbids a man to feel repentance for a good deed, but he must certainly have a right to regret such a deed when it is malevolently misconstrued and turned against him as a reproach. In the evening, after the performance, which was to be the last, I took the bank according to my promise. 
I lost a few sequins, but was caressed by everybody, and that is much more pleasant than winning, when we are not labouring under the hard necessity of making money. Count Spada, who had got quite fond of me, wanted me to accompany him to Brisighetta, but I resisted his entreaties, because I had firmly resolved on going to Naples. The next morning I was awoke by a terrible noise in the passage, almost at the door of my room. Getting out of my bed, I opened my door to ascertain the cause of the uproar. I see a troop of Spiri at the door of a chamber, and in that chamber, sitting up in bed, a fine-looking man, who was making himself hoarse, by screaming in Latin against that rabble, the plague of Italy, and against the innkeeper, who had been rascally enough to open the door. I inquire of the innkeeper what it all means. "'This gentleman,' answers the scoundrel, "'who, it appears, can only speak Latin, is in bed with a girl, and the Spiri of the bishop have been sent to know whether she is truly his wife.' all perfectly regular. If she is his wife, he has only to convince them by showing a certificate of marriage. If she is not, of course he must go to prison with her. Yet it need not happen, for I undertake to arrange everything in a friendly manner for a few seconds. I have only to exchange a few words with the chief of the Spiri, and they will all go away. If you can speak Latin, you had better go in and make him listen to reason. Who has broken open the door of this room? Nobody. I have opened it myself with the key, as is my duty. Yes, the duty of a highway robber, but not of an honest innkeeper. Such infamous dealing aroused my indignation, and I made up my mind to interfere. I entered the room, although I had still my nightcap on, and informed the gentleman of the cause of the disturbance. He answers with a laugh that, in the first place, it was impossible to say whether the person who was in bed with him was a woman, for that person had only been seen in the costume of a military officer, and that, in the second place, he did not think that any human being had a right to compel him to say whether his bedfellow was his wife or his mistress, even supposing that his companion was truly a woman. At all events, he added, I am determined not to give one crown to arrange the affair, and to remain in bed until my door is shut. The moment I am dressed, I will treat you to amusing denouement of the comedy. I will drive away all those scoundrels at the point of my sword. I then see in a corner a broadsword and a Hungarian costume looking like a military uniform. I ask whether he is an officer. I have written my name and profession, he answers, in the hotel book. Astonished at the absurdity of the innkeeper, I ask him whether it is so. He confesses it, but adds that the clergy have the right to prevent scandal. The insult you have offered to that officer, Mr. Landlord, will cost you very dear. His only answer is to laugh in my face. Highly enraged at seeing such a scoundrel laugh at me, I take up the officer's quarrel warmly, and asked him to entrust his passport to me for a few minutes. "'I have two, he says. Therefore I can let you have one.' And taking the document out of his pocket-book, he hands it to me. The passport was signed by Cardinal Albani. The officer was a captain in a Hungarian regiment belonging to the Empress and Queen. He was from Rome, on his way to Parma, with dispatches from Cardinal Albani Alexander to Monsieur de Tillon. Prime Minister of the Infanta of Parma. At the same moment a man burst into the room, speaking very loudly, and asked me to tell the officer that the affair must be settled at once, because he wanted to leave Cesena immediately. "'Who are you?' I asked the man. He answered that he was the Vetturino, whom the captain had engaged. I saw that it was a regular put-up thing, and begged the captain to let me attend to the business, assuring him that I would settle it to his honour and advantage. "'And do exactly as you please.' he said. 
Then, turning towards the veterino, I ordered him to bring up the captain's luggage, saying that he would be paid at once. When he had done so, I handed him eight sequins out of my own purse, and made him give me a receipt in the name of the captain, who could only speak German, Hungarian, and Latin. The veterino went away, and the spiri followed him in the greatest consternation, except two who remained. "'Captain,' I said to the Hungarian, "'keep your bed until I return.' I am going now to the bishop to give him an account of these proceedings, and make him understand that he owes you some reparation. Besides, General Spada is here, and—'I know him,' interrupted the captain. "'And if I had been aware of his being in Cesena, I would have shot the landlord when he opened my door to those scoundrels.' I hurried over my toilet, and without waiting for my hair to be dressed, I proceeded to the bishop's palace, and making a great deal of noise, I almost compelled the servants to take me to his room. A lackey, who was at the door, informed me that his lordship was still in bed. "'Never mind. I cannot wait.' I pushed him aside and entered the room. I related the whole affair to the bishop, exaggerating the uproar and making much of the injustice of such proceedings, and railing at a vexatious police daring to molest travellers and to insult the sacred rights of individuals and nations. The bishop, without answering me, referred me to his chancellor, to whom I repeated all I had said to the bishop, but with words calculated to irritate rather than to soften, and certainly not likely to obtain the release of the captain. I even went so far as to threaten, and I said that if I were in the place of the officer, I would demand a public reparation. The priest laughed at my threats. It was just what I wanted, and after asking me whether I had taken leave of my senses, the Chancellor told me to apply to the captain of the Sbiri. "'I shall go to somebody else,' I said. "'Reverend sir, besides the captain of the Sbiri.' Delighted at having made matters worse, I left him and proceeded straight to the house of General Spada, but, being told that he could not be seen before eight o'clock, I returned to the inn. The state of excitement in which I was, the ardour with which I had made the affair mine, might have led anyone to suppose that my indignation had been roused only by disgust at seeing an odious persecution perpetrated upon a stranger by an unrestrained, immoral, and vexatious police. But why should I deceive the kind reader to whom I have promised to tell the truth? I must therefore say that my indignation was real, but my ardour was excited by another feeling of a more personal nature. I fancied that the woman concealed under the bedclothes was a beauty. I longed to see her face, which shame, most likely, had prevented her from showing. She had heard me speak, and the good opinion that I had of myself did not leave the shadow of a doubt in my mind that she would prefer me to her captain. The door of the room being still open, I went in and related to the captain all I had done, assuring him that in the course of the day he would be at liberty to continue his journey at the bishop's expense, for the general would not fail to obtain complete satisfaction for him. He thanked me warmly, gave back the eight ducats I had paid for him, and said that he would not leave the city till the next day. "'From what country,' I asked him, "'is your travelling companion?' "'From France, and he only speaks his native language.' Then you speak French? Not one word. That is amusing. Then you converse in pantomime? Exactly. I pity you, for it is a difficult language. Yes, to express the various shades of thought. But in the material part of our intercourse we understand each other quite well. May I invite myself to breakfast with you? Ask my friend whether he has any objection. Amiable companion of the captain, I said in French, "'Will you kindly accept me as a third guest at the breakfast-table?' At these words I saw coming out of the bedclothes a lovely head, 
with dishevelled hair and a blooming, laughing face which, although it was crowned with a man's cap, left no doubt that the captain's friend belonged to that sex without which man would be the most miserable animal on earth. Delighted with the graceful creature, I told her that I had been happy enough to feel interested in her even before I had seen her, and that now that I had the pleasure of seeing her, I could but renew with greater zeal all my efforts to serve her. She answered me, with the grace and the animation, which are the exclusive privilege of her native country, and retorted my argument in the most witty manner. I was already under the charm. My request was granted. I went out to order breakfast, and to give them an opportunity of making themselves comfortable in bed, for they were determined not to get up until the door of their room was closed again. The waiter came, and I went in with him. I found my lovely Frenchwoman wearing a blue frock-coat, with her hair badly arranged like a man's, but very charming even in that strange costume. I longed to see her up. She ate her breakfast without once interrupting the officer speaking to me, but to whom I was not listening, or listening with very little attention, for I was in a sort of ecstatic trance. Immediately after breakfast I called on the general, and related the affair to him, enlarging upon it in such a manner as to pique his martial pride. I told him that, unless he settled the matter himself, the Hungarian captain was determined to send an express to the cardinal immediately. But my eloquence was unnecessary, for the general liked to see priests attend to the business of heaven, but he could not bear them to meddle in temporal affairs. "'I shall,' he said, "'immediately put a stop to this ridiculous comedy, and treat it in a very serious manner.' "'Go at once to the inn,' he said to his aide-de-camp. Invite that officer and his companion to dine with me to-day, and repair afterwards to the bishop's palace. Give him notice that the officer who has been so grossly insulted by his sbiri shall not leave the city before he has received a complete apology, and whatever sum of money he may claim as damages. Tell him that the notice comes from me, and that all the expenses incurred by the officer shall be paid by him. What pleasure it was for me to listen to these words! In my vanity I fancied I had almost prompted them to the general." I accompanied the aide-de-camp, and introduced him to the captain, who received him with the joy of a soldier meeting a comrade. The adjutant gave him the general's invitation for him and his companion, and asked him to write down what satisfaction he wanted, as well as the amount of damages he claimed. At the sight of the general's adjutant, the spiri had quickly vanished. I handed to the captain pen, paper, and ink, and he wrote his claim in pretty good Latin for a native of Hungary. The excellent fellow absolutely refused to ask for more than thirty sequins, in spite of all I said to make him claim one hundred. He was likewise a great deal too easy as to the satisfaction he demanded, for all he asked was to see the landlord and the spiri beg his pardon on their knees in the presence of the general's adjutant. He threatened the bishop to send an express to Rome to Cardinal Alexander, unless his demands were complied with within two hours, and to remain in Cesena at the rate of ten sequins a day at the bishop's expense. The officer left us, and a moment afterwards the landlord came in respectfully to inform the captain that he was free. But the captain having begged me to tell the scoundrel that he owed him a sound thrashing, he lost no time in gaining the rule. I left my friends alone to get dressed, and to attend to my own toilet, as I dined with them at the general's. An hour afterwards I found them ready in their military costumes. The uniform of the Frenchwoman was of course a fancy one, but very elegant. The moment I saw her, I gave up all idea of Naples, and decided upon accompanying the two friends to Parma. The beauty of the lovely Frenchwoman had already captivated me. The captain was certainly on the threshold of sixty, and, as a matter of course, I thought such a union very badly assorted. I imagined that the affair which I was already concocting in my brain could be arranged amicably. 
the adjutant came back with a priest sent by the bishop, who told the captain that he should have the satisfaction as well as the damages he had claimed, but that he must be content with fifteen sequins. Thirty or nothing,' dryly answered the Hungarian. They were at last given to him, and thus the matter ended. The victory was due to my exertions, and I had won the friendship of the captain and his lovely companion. In order to guess, even at first sight, that the friend of the worthy captain was not a man, it was enough to look at the hips. She was too well made as a woman ever to pass for a man, and the women who disguise themselves in male attire and boast of being like men are very wrong, for by such a boast they confess themselves deficient in one of the greatest perfections appertaining to woman. A little before dinner-time we repaired to General Spada's mansion, and the general presented the two officers to all the ladies. Not one of them was deceived in the young officer, but, being already acquainted with the adventure, they were all delighted to dine with the hero of the comedy, and treated the handsome officer exactly as if he had truly been a man, but I am bound to confess that the male guests offered the Frenchwoman homages more worthy of her sex. Madame Carini alone did not seem pleased because the lovely stranger monopolized the general attention, and it was a blow to her vanity to see herself neglected. She never spoke to her, except to show off her French, which she could speak well. The poor captain scarcely opened his lips, for no one cared to speak Latin, and the general had not much to say in German. An elderly priest, who was one of the guests, tried to justify the conduct of the bishop by assuring us that the innkeeper and the spiri had acted only under the orders of the Holy Office. That is the reason, he said, for which no bolts are allowed in the rooms of the hotels, so that strangers may not shut themselves up in their chambers. The Holy Inquisition does not allow a man to sleep with any woman but his wife. Twenty years later I found all the doors in Spain with a bolt outside, so that travellers were, as if they had been in prison, exposed to the outrageous molestation of nocturnal visits from the police. That disease is so chronic in Spain that it threatens to overthrow the monarchy some day, and I should not be astonished if one fine morning the Grand Inquisitor was to have the king shaved and to take his place. End of chapter 22